Um, welcome to today's event, uh, Prospects for Global Energy Markets, including the role of the United States, Perspectives from the World Energy Outlook. Um, we are delighted to have uh, Fatih Barol, who is the Executive Director of the International Energy Agency, back here at CSIS as we do uh, every year. Um, for those of you who don't know, which I can't imagine is a large uh, group of people in the audience, the International Energy Agency is one of the preeminent institutions for offering energy insights uh, to policymakers, people in companies, uh, folks in civil society, about some of the core questions facing uh, the energy sector. The IEA does this through a number of different ways that we have become uh, very accustomed to using in our own research here at CSIS, through things like oil market outlooks uh, that they do on a monthly basis, to their global energy uh, outlook uh, that covers uh, the globe, to a series of uh, special uh, energy technology perspectives that will allow you to track uh, different energy technologies and the progress they're making relative to expectations. Uh, really, a, a whole host of different resources um, that I think has given them their rightful sort of name as one of the preeminent institutions thinking about energy uh, analysis. Um, under Fatih's leadership, the IEA, which we'll hear a little bit more about later, um, has uh, taken on the first modernization effort since its inception in 1974, and this is appropriate for two different reasons. One, uh, it's 45 years old uh, this year, and who doesn't want a bit of an overhaul when you hit 45? Uh, and then uh, second, uh, there's probably no executive director more suited uh, to take this task on than Fatih, who has been at the IEA uh, for the better part of 20 years and knows the institution both internally and, and quite frankly has worked very, very hard to understand the external expectations uh, of the institution in a very dynamic and changing global energy setting. So very pleased to have uh, uh, Fatih here today to present some of the uh, out the insights from uh, the 2018 World Energy Outlook. Uh, and then we will have, uh, we're very pleased to have a wonderful group uh, of uh, experts to talk about some of those trends a little bit more in depth. So we've got John Hess, who is the Chief Executive <laughs> Officer of Hess Corporation and a CSIS uh, trustee who has become a regular feature in this event every year, and we're deeply grateful for him and his participation there. Uh, we've got Frank Fannin, who's the Assistant Secretary of the Energy Bureau at the uh, State Department, who is on the front lines of thinking about the intersection between energy and foreign policy. And then Catherine Hamilton, who is the Chair of 38 North Solutions, um, and also involved in the World Economic Forum's Advanced uh, Energy Technology Global Future Council. That's a long name, even for Washington standards. Um, and many of you know her as one of the Energy Gang uh, podcast, a very, very popular and insightful podcast uh, here uh, that keeps people informed. So we will uh, invite Fatih up for our presentation, and then we will have a discussion afterwards. But Fatih, on behalf of myself and John Hamry and all your friends here at CSIS, welcome back. Uh, many thanks, Sarah, and good morning to uh, all the colleagues uh, here. It's a great pleasure to come uh, back to CSIS once again. Thank you very much for the kind invitation, uh, Sarah and John. Very much uh, appreciated. Uh, I arrived here the day before yesterday uh, from uh, Canada, and yesterday I had a very uh, fruitful uh, day. I had the privilege to have a joint press conference with uh, Secretary Perry at the Department of Energy's new press uh, room uh, over there. Then uh, I had the privilege to 
have a hearing uh, at the Senate uh, chaired by Mrs. Uh, Lisa Markowski and the ranking member uh, Joe Manchin. But a special uh, event was the, uh, as Sarah mentioned, this year is our 45th uh, uh, anniversary. And uh, Secretary uh, uh, Fennin and his colleagues organized a wonderful event uh, at the very room uh, where uh, Mr. Kissinger and the other uh, leaders around the world founded the uh, IEA. I want to thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Fennin, uh, for the great surprise gesture uh, for me and for my uh, agency. And many, many other meetings uh, yesterday. And, uh, but of course, it's uh, great to be uh, with you here, all of you, uh, today. What I thought I would do is that to share with you some of our preoccupations about the global energy uh, markets and environment, but also some uh, humble suggestions from Paris for the U.S. policymakers and U.S. Uh, colleagues for the uh, uh, next years uh, to come. Now, if I can, uh, first of all, uh, start with the where we think we are in the global uh, energy markets as of uh, today, there are many changes happening in the global energy markets. But they are not going in the, all in the same direction. They are going in uh, different uh, directions. If I can give you a couple of uh, examples. The shale revolution, huge. US, of course, at the center of it, uh, but also uh, we see uh, Canada is uh, moving strongly. Just to give you one uh, number, uh, between 2010 and uh, uh, today, the uh, amount of oil production increase from US plus uh, Canada is equal to uh, one Russia. So in about 10 years of time, U.S. plus Canada created one Russia, or if you wish, so as another Saudi Arabia. So this is an addition uh, coming there. So just to put the things in a context, and I will come in a moment, but it is for me perhaps the, one of the most important changes uh, we are seeing now. But there is other change from a completely different direction. Renewables, solar PV is becoming uh, uh, one of the cheapest source of new electricity uh, generation and driven by uh, especially uh, emerging uh, countries and competing uh, very very uh, strongly with the established uh, sources uh, mainly for electricity generation a very is about emissions carbon dioxide emissions we all know that um, uh, every month Every second month, there is a major report from United Nations, from us, from governments, that the emissions need to decline very quickly and much more radically than the, the, the previous report suggests. But when we look at the markets, what is happening there, 2017 and 2018, we see emissions are increasing. So there is a growing disconnect between those reports, government targets, and so on, and what is happening in the uh, energy sector uh, globally today. And this, this disconnect is, uh, I believe, a very uh, worrying, not only the numbers, but uh, that the, there is a, a, a growing gap 
between the policymakers and the uh, real life imperatives. Many of you uh, uh, know who follow the uh, IEA uh, work as, uh, for example, Ambassador Cecuta uh, here. We have been looking at the energy access, electricity access issues almost two decades. We are counting how many people have no electricity in the world, as we think it's a very important issue. And when we started to do that, uh, uh, early 2000s, uh, there were about two billion people who did not have access to electricity. This came down and down and down, and as of uh, last year, for the first time, we have less than one billion people who did not have access to electricity. This is on one hand the good news, it is coming down, but still, one billion people having no access to electricity is, we think, is a, uh, not a uh, very good uh, news. Why it came down? There are a few countries played an important role, but the most important decline came as a result of the huge success story from uh, India. Under uh, Prime Minister uh, Modi, they brought a lot of electricity to uh, uh, especially rural communities, and it played a very important role. And of that one billion people, big chunk is in Sub-Saharan Africa. Today, still two out of three people in Sub-Saharan Africa have no electricity, two out of three. And I think this is one of the very important, it should be one of the most important uh, discussion topics at the international energy uh, debate, an area that the IEA takes very seriously, and this year, we are focusing on Africa in our world energy outlook, and uh, with the African Union uh, Commission, we are organizing Africa IEA Summit in Addis to look at those issues uh, together. Uh, electricity, extremely important in two terms, in terms of growth and in terms of what kind of growth. What do, you, what do I mean in terms of growth? Global energy demand is growing strongly, but global electricity demand grows two times faster than the energy demand. So it means the electricity's share in energy, total energy, is increasing as a result of uh, much more modern lives, digitalization, people having more access to uh, electricity. But at the same time, the increasing share of renewable energy in the electricity generation makes the life of the utilities a bit more complicated than it is before. I will come to that in a moment. The old business models uh, just push the button and electricity comes uh, permanently uh, is uh, changing and the utilities are trying to uh, adapt uh, themselves to the age of growing share of renewables and also digitalization. This is an important topic for the electricity sector. Now, finally, we think that the, I will show you in a moment, there are many colleagues from the energy industry here, it's excellent, they are making the investments, we think, but the biggest chunk of the key decision, decisions in the energy world today still rests with the government government decisions are extremely important. Therefore, it is very important that our governments make the wise decisions as energy is a, 
sector with the long-lasting implications, uh, because those investments are rather uh, long-term uh, investments. Now, Sarah mentioned uh, that the IEA uh, is modernizing itself. One of the things what we are doing is we have been years and years an organization of the so-called uh, only Western countries, the US, Canada, Europe, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand. Three years ago, we said it is now time to look at the more Latin America, Asia, Africa, and, and the others. And we open our doors to those emerging uh, countries as uh, part of the IEA family. And why we did it, not for the humanitarian reasons and so on only, but also for this picture. In the year 2000, United States was the number one energy consumer of the world, followed by uh, Europe, European uh, Union, and then uh, China. But the economic and demographic changes meant that the who consumes more energy is changing. China became number one. Europe went down, and India started to move. And when we look at the next years to come, this transformation is continuing to happen in an even more rapid way. Uh, for example, Europe, which was the number uh, two consumer of the uh, world's energy, goes to number five tomorrow. And uh, India is moving up. Africa is uh, moving up. So therefore, we thought it is now time to engage with those countries much more closely uh, to help them to make the right decisions uh, for the building the energy infrastructure, making the right uh, choices. And uh, the, the message is the geography of energy is changing and very rapidly. And the, all the companies, governments, all of us need to position ourselves with the, uh, this changing geography rather than uh, 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 looking at uh, behind. Now, one of our, uh, of course, major preoccupations is oil and will be oil. It is the most strategic good uh, today. And uh, our, we have now uh, one major debate. Wherever I go, I he came here from Canada. It was in Canada before Europe, Asia. Do we still need oil? Since we have now the electric cars coming, this question, and this is the uh, question that we discuss uh, a lot at the IEA. And uh, my answer is absolutely yes, we need oil. Absolutely yes. Uh, we think that the uh, global oil demand will continue to uh, increase many, many years. We look at the next few years here. Because, ladies and gentlemen, cars, first of all, with all the cars in the world, cars are not the driver of oil demand growth. Anyways, the, all the cars of the world today consume about 18, 19% of the global oil consumption. More than 80% comes from other users. And when we look at the next years to come, the drivers of global oil demand growth are trucks, petrochemical industry, aviation, shipping, and so on. Aviation, not many people talk, but aviation is a very important one. Asia is just starting to fly, fly, Asia, for two reasons. The, their income levels are increasing, 
and low-cost carriers are mushrooming. And today in China, India, the uh, passenger travel activity is eight times less than Europe or United States. And they are, when they get uh, a bit more, uh, their income level increases, they start to fly, which means uh, jet fuel. So simple. Again, trucks, they are much bigger driver of uh, oil demand than uh, cars. Petrochemical industry, huge driver of oil consumption. So from our point of view, electric cars are growing. Today we have about 5 million electric cars. They will make a, an effect on the oil demand growth, maybe a bit of a slowdown, but even not as much as the increasing efficiency of the cars have a more effect, in fact, on the oil demand uh, uh, growth, but we expect oil demand to grow. Now, this is one factor. The other thing is where will this production come from? Now, I have one, uh, again, a point to mention to you that we have some we have uh, some uh, good news for U.S., but we have some, still some worries. Now, worry is the following. We have already some oil fields which are producing oil, and when we look at those fields, significant amount of mature old aging fields are in a decline. So oil fields, they don't uh, like the, uh, uh, yeah, just, uh, you push the button, they produce 50, 60 years uh, oil. They produce oil, they come to a certain age, and they start to uh, 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 decline afterwards. I'm sure John knows uh, 10 times uh, better than uh, me, but this is the basically very simple terms, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fields uh, age. So there's a big gap between the current fields, what they will produce in 2025, for example, and the demand. Now, we have already some uh, projects, FIDs made in the bank, coming from conventional oil uh, 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 fields, and they are already uh, they are non shale uh, fields. And therefore, if there are, but when I look at our numbers, investment numbers, 2018, 2019 first numbers, we don't see a big increase appetite in new investments. And therefore, if there are no new conventional oil investments come, the gap needs to be filled by shale. Shale makes wonders, lots of uh, uh, miracles, but uh, we would need another miracle to come from uh, US shale oil, another exceptional growth, we need about another 10 million barrels per day to come in the uh, next uh, eight years. Otherwise, uh, either we need more investments for the conventional oil or exceptional growth from shale, or we may have some challenges in the next years to come if the investments do not uh, increase. About natural gas. Natural gas is the fastest growing fastest growing uh, fossil fuel. And there is one single important driver here, which is uh, China, double-digit growth. And here, the main reason is not economics, not this, not that. This is only one driver, single driver, is the Chinese 
President Xi uh, summarizes making the skies of China blue again. This is the main driver. So as a result of that, uh, China built in the last five years 13 new LNG terminals and the Chinese uh, gas consumption go uh, skyrockets and uh, China is now overtaking Japan as the largest gas importer of the world this year. And Japan is overtaken. Now, of course, other uh, countries in Southeast Asia, India, uh, driven by rather moderate prices and again, air pollution, uh, 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 concerns. Now the supply, these are long distances, uh, how the supply will come, where will it come from? There are two ways to bring gas from point A to point B, pipelines or uh, LNG, and currently big chunk of the uh, international gas trade is made by pipelines. But uh, what we see, what we expect, is the pendulum switches towards uh, LNG. Why? United States, shale growing very, very strongly. Last year, uh, I forgot to mention this number uh, yesterday, it's a very impressive number. Last year's US shale gas growth was higher than 100 uh, BCM, which was the highest growth registered in the history of energy by any country in one year, 100 BCM. So it is, it's a, a huge uh, uh, growth, and this is continue to, uh, we will see this trajectory. So uh, US shale plus uh, Australia plus uh, Qatar will bring the LNG to the market, and the markets will be much more flexible, shorter contracts, and uh, easier to handle, and good for the, I believe, for the uh, gas uh, security. And uh, LNG will be the main source of gas trade in the uh, uh, next years uh, to come, and the United States uh, will play a very important uh, role uh, uh, here. Now, I mentioned solar, wind and solar growing very strongly, mainly because they are getting cheaper. It is the, it is not a, they are not growing because uh, of the climate change, air pollution, these are all important, but main thing is they are getting cheaper. Uh, and uh, it, they are growing everywhere, but also uh, including uh, the uh, United States. Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, renewables, uh, we sometimes, uh, I mean, I say we, generally, the discussion in international energy debate, forget United States and renewables, as we focus more and more uh, oil and gas, but uh, US is the second largest uh, country in terms of share of uh, uh, renewables, and there is still a huge potential, both for wind and solar. Huge potential to be tapped, and I hope that we will see the share of uh, renewables continue to increase. It is very good for the environment. It is very good for the economy. But there is a major challenge. As many of you know, wind and solar 
their availability is uh, bound with the uh, weather conditions. How we integrate them in our electricity systems is a major challenge. If there is no wind, the customer still wants to have the electricity when they push the button. So how do we uh, make this link is a major issue, major preoccupation of many of us, including the, uh, the IEA, that an area that we have a great expertise, as I will tell you in a moment. Which is the issue of flexibility? If the share of renewables come to a higher level of the total electricity generation, it is becoming difficult to manage the uh, systems. For example, if the share is less than 10% in the total uh, electricity generation, with the existing power system, you can manage this without any major problems. But if the share increases, comes around 20%, like in some countries around the world now, in, in Europe, you have to make investments in order to provide flexibilities around those uh, renewable energies. In the case of there is a problem about their availability. And if it goes even uh, uh, higher, then you have to make sure that you also have to invest, either make the grids stronger, well, in, well connected uh, with, the, with each other, and make investment in the dispatchable sources of electricity generation, such as uh, nuclear or gas or coal or, or whatever it is. So uh, the challenge for the governments, as some people think, is not one, which is increasing share of renewables, but there's other challenge, namely, if you increase the share of renewables, you have to make sure that there are flexibilities in your power system so that you have a security of electricity supply. So you cannot only push the button to give support to renewables alone, you have to also think of the security of electricity supply because electricity is our life uh, uh, today and uh, we cannot afford any disruption in the electricity supply. Since uh, we have the honor to have uh, John uh, with us uh, uh, here, I want to talk about nuclear power. I am a bit worried about the situation of nuclear power in the world, but especially in this country and some other uh, countries like Europe and Japan and others. United States has been the, uh, the largest nuclear uh, country since almost uh, five, uh, six uh, decades. And currently, about 20%, 20% of the US electricity comes from nuclear power. And in Europe, it is even a bit higher, about 25%. But, ladies and gentlemen, what we are seeing that there is very little appetite, first of all, to build new nuclear power plants, if any, but maybe more dangerously, there is not enough effort to 
increase the uh, lifetime of the existing nuclear power plants, which are running in uh, operating in a, under uh, best safety conditions. This is worrying. And if, this, if there is no intervention from industry, from governments, we are afraid that this 20% share of nuclear in the American electric generation will soon go to 7%. This is unbelievable. I don't know if anybody is preparing to that day what the 7% means for electricity security, base load in this country, and the resulting increase in the emissions. This is one side of the story. The other side of the story is that some other countries around the world are doing something different. For example, China, Russia, India are building nuclear power plants. About 40% of all the uh, nuclear power plants under construction uh, are in China today. And maybe strikingly, our numbers show that in less than 10 years of time, which is tomorrow, China will be overtaking United States as the number one nuclear power of the world. And this has many implications, uh, one of them being a, there are many countries around the world who want to have a nuclear industry, China by, or Russia, learning by doing, they are decreasing the cost of capital of uh, nuclear power. They may well uh, be the uh, tomorrow's nuclear technology exporters, uh, challenging the established ones, such as United States or Canada or, or Europe. This is the one consequence I want to mention uh, here, but there may well be other consequences, which I am sure you all know better than me. But I wanted to highlight this uh, major issue. I did uh, uh, yesterday at my hearing at the Senate with my uh, uh, colleagues here uh, from the, uh, uh, DC, and uh, it is a friendly reminder from Paris, your friends in Paris, to bring this issue to your attention because uh, it needs some, uh, in my view, some uh, policy attention here. Now, investment. Investment is the, uh, the uh, area where we are very much uh, uh, concentrating at the uh, yeah, how much money is invested in the energy sector, where, what is the source of this money. And we look at the following. We said investments today for power plants, oil fields, refineries, uh, uh, for industrial facilities, all the energy-related infrastructure in the world. How much of this investment comes from governments, as a government-driven uh, investments? How much from the private sector? Normally you think, living in the United States or in Europe as well, bulk of the investments are made by the uh, companies, which is not the right answer. The right answer is 
about 70% of the investments in the world today are made either directly by the governments or as a response to government regulations uh, or uh, measures such as uh, the auctions for renewable energies, for example, <coughs> government-related uh, uh, measures. So the only 30% of the investments are made as a response to the changes in the oil prices or electricity price in the free markets, but 70% of the all the energy investments, power plants, transmission lines, distribution lines, pipelines, refineries, etc., cetera, uh, are uh, coming uh, from uh, the uh, governments. Which means, as I said in the beginning, our destiny, we believe, lies with the governments. Of course, this is a, I don't know if it's a good news for the energy world, but it's a good news for the IES, since we are an intergovernmental organization and advising uh, to uh, several uh, 38 governments uh, around the world. So uh, we think this is important to bring to attention that the, uh, the private sector is very important. They put the money, but they, where they put the money is in most cases regulated uh, by the uh, governments. Now, one other issue, critical issue, CO2 emissions. And here, I wanted to bring a very specific uh, issue to your attention. It may look a bit complicated, but I believe this is the most, in my view, personal view, it is the most important blind spots of the debate on uh, emissions and climate change. I will try to make it very simple, which is the following. With the current trajectory, which, we, which people call it uh, based on the nationally determined contribution of the uh, governments, we, these emissions are increasing, and they are very much in line uh, uh, with a temperature increase, uh, which are uh, above the climate targets put by many countries around the world. So this is the one. What the people would like to see is a, a target which is much lower, the sustainable development scenario, uh, we, we call it. Now, this is not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that there is a lot of discussion in the world including the United States, to discuss what are we going to build new should be sustainable, renewables, electric cars, and so on, the next infrastructure, what we are going to build, what should it be? My point is, it is only one part of the problem, and not the real part of the problem. I will explain you, try to explain what the real part of the problem is. I asked my colleagues, we have uh, 300 uh, brilliant uh, experts in the IEA. One of them is with me, Amos Bromhead. He was uh, here. Uh, Amos, Amos is here. Uh, I told them, can you please do the following Herculean task? Just look at the entire energy infrastructure of the world today. All the power plants, cars, industrial facilities, factories, uh, 
between now and 2040, how much emissions will come from them, and how does it compare with the international climate targets? Talking about the two degrees and others. So we have a budget given to us. How much of the existing infrastructure eating up that uh, budget given to us, and how much room we have uh, for maneuver? What we have found out is completely terrifying. The existing infrastructure already eats up 95% of the carbon budget allowed us to be in line with the international targets, which means the following, basically. As of now, we cannot be, we cannot buy any, basically, any traditional car. We cannot build any power plant, which is gas or coal or, or, or oil or, or whatever. We can't build any factories. We have to live like this if we want to be in line with the international targets, including uh, Paris. It is, of course, completely impossible. The problem is not only, therefore, what we are going to build new, what are we going to do with the legacy, the huge locked-in infrastructure today? If we don't intervene this infrastructure, we have no chance whatsoever to address this emissions problem. And what is the, the part of the major, the major chunk of this existing infrastructure? It is basically the Asia inefficient subcritical Asian coal plants. It is the reason for me, if you, there are many technologies in the world today we are discussing, if you ask me what is the most critical technology, I don't say what will be the immediately most usable, but most critical technology for me, which is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. It's extremely important. Why? Very simple fact. In the United States, or in Europe, we have also coal plants. Yes. I came here from Canada. They are shutting down their coal plants. It is easy because they are 40, about 40 years old. They are already coming to their retirement age. Somebody who, who is if in the uh, uh, government or somewhere else, one year before the retirement age, they go for retirement. You give some money, they go for early retirement. It's like that. But in Asia, why well, it is more than 40 years old here, the average age, in Asia, the coal fleet is very young. It is 11 years old. It will be with us 40 years. And they are coming from rather low-income countries, and they don't have the appetite to shut them down because we want so. Utilities, they already pay the, 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 the capital, make the investment. They want the returns to come back. Very normal, very fair. So this is the biggest dilemma. This is the biggest dilemma uh, today that uh, how we are going to deal with the about 2,000 gigawatts of coal, bulk of them being, uh, being in Asia, a chunk of it being uh, inefficient, and 
very, very young fleet. So therefore, in my view, we have two tasks. One, we have to intervene in the existing infrastructure to make it more sustainable through new technologies, innovations such as the CCUS. And second, what we are going to build new should be as sustainable as possible if we want to reach our environmental goals. Now, just to finish, uh, there are many uh, experienced uh, uh, diplomats uh, here, uh, and they know it uh, very well, uh, that the geopolitics today are playing a very key role in the global economy and global energy maybe much more pronounced these days than the previous uh, years, and therefore we believe energy security is still a critical uh, issue. U.S. oil and gas is uh, reshaping the market dynamics, and as I said uh, before, in my personal view, in my personal view, uh, the shale revolution, we have only seen the first phase of it. Second phase is coming. We have not seen the full impact of the shale revolution yet. The first phase of shale was mainly for the domestic purposes, making the United States moving from an important country to a self-sufficient country in terms of oil, and for gas, using for power generation, petrochemical industry. Now the exporting time is starting, and this will have a very important implications. And I am sure, and I hope, that the uh, U.S. colleagues will make the most use of this second wave uh, to enhance the global energy security and the wealth of the uh, 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 different uh, countries around the world. Gas is growing very strongly, and uh, we have no doubt that in any scenario, gas will be a, a big uh, winner, natural gas. But we have to be very careful in terms of the, during the production of gas to reduce the methane emissions to make it uh, really uh, beneficial for the uh, environment. And for the renewables, most welcome growth across the world, almost no exception. Uh, the challenges where IEA is uh, uh, working very hard, how we integrate them to the electricity systems and not to cause any uh, accidents, any incidents around the world. And finally, we believe at the IEA that the challenges we are facing in terms of energy security, in terms of environmental issues, we don't have the luxury to focus on our favorite technology, favorite fuel. We need all the fuels and all the technologies, uh, the, from uh, carbon capture utilization storage to uh, hydrogen energy, from hydrogen to the storage of uh, electricity, nuclear power, efficiency, and others. Uh, if we exclude one or two of them, they are already very difficult to reach uh, targets, maybe uh, impossible uh, to reach in this area that IEA is working on. So uh, many thanks uh, for uh, listening to me, IEA's views. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to invite all of our panelists up to get uh, started with our conversation. You okay? All right. 
Well, Fatih, in a very short period of time, you gave us a lot of uh, food for thought. I want to jump right into it. I think we, we got a little bit of a late start this morning, so we may extend by about 10 minutes or so to make sure we get some good audience discussion. And I want to start where, where, you, uh, where, where you stopped um, and also where you've been quoted, saying we're sort of only at the first phase of this uh, shale renaissance that we've seen in the United States. We've got John Hess here uh, involved in that on a very day-to-day -day level. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on uh, what you've termed before here in in, in forums like this short cycle oil and the role that it's playing in the market. Absolutely, and it's an honor to be here. Thank you, and Fatih, excellent presentation. Thank you. Uh, I think the context to understand shale has to do with the investment uh, challenge that uh, Fatih talked about earlier. Uh, the world, as the IEA has stated, has to invest about $580 billion a year to grow oil and gas production to meet worldwide demand, but also meet the production declines that he talked about. And uh, the world investment uh, for the last four years has been under that $580 billion. What's interesting, the only area up in the last four years is shale, and all the other areas globally outside of shale are actually down 40%. Shale's up about 60%. Now, shale has been a bonanza for the U.S. economy. Uh, 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 10 million jobs, uh, 2 million direct, 8 million indirect, there's a real multiplier effect have been created, 100 billion a year of investment. Uh, the trade deficit has gone down by half in the last 10 years, $350 billion, and shale gas has allowed the U.S. to have electric costs that are half what they are in Europe, and also has allowed the U.S. to decrease its carbon emissions about 10% in the last 10 years. The one area, however, certain people in the administration seem to think the lower the oil price, the better for the economy. And that might have been true 10 years ago. But an important uh, set of facts is 10 years ago, gasoline demand was 9 million barrels a day, and crude oil production was 5 million barrels a day. Those numbers today are 9 million barrels a day because of efficiency for gasoline demand, but 12 million barrels a day for crude oil production. So what we need is a price that works both for producers and consumers to have economic prosperity. I think that's very important to know. Um, in terms of the role of shale in the oil mix, Fatih's right. Uh, the impact is shown and there's more to come. Uh, what's important to know, however, uh, shale got back on its feet when oil prices were $40 and $50 a barrel. How's that possible when cash flows of oil companies were being cut in half? Outside investment. $50 billion in the last uh, three years has been thrown at shale from public equity and $20 billion from public equity. That's what's allowed shale to get back on its feet. What's also important, and Dr. Fatih's right, um, shale is about 6% of world oil supply and will probably grow to 10% or 11% by mid-decade. Uh, it will meet about half that 10 million barrel gap about five million barrels a day. But I often say that shale is not the next Saudi Arabia. What do I mean by that? Yes, Dr. Fatih's right. Shale has grown to be a major player to the size of Russia or uh, Saudi Arabia today. But going forward, the resource base just isn't nearly as strong as Saudi Arabia in terms of being able to sustain the growth in oil supply going forward. So uh, I think it's very important to understand that. And also, there's you know, one other point, uh, uh, what's going on today. With lower prices, shale uh, is starting to moderate its growth. A lot of money was thrown at it, now investors are demanding 
companies to live within their means, live within their, generate free cash flow. And that actually is showing in some of the latest quarterly reports where some of the oil companies are actually cutting their expenditures. So shale will still grow, but I think the growth will be more moderate going forward. And, and you're, you're hinting at it, but have you seen the kind of growth that you expect to see in things like long cycle oil? Well, long cycle, uh, while shale's recovered, long cycle, I would say, is on life support. Yeah. I said uh, investment in long cycle has gone down 40%. Some of the signposts of that, and I guess one of the areas to focus is in the offshore deep water, which is actually 7% of oil supply. Uh, the deep water Gulf of Mexico, uh, uh, in 2004, 8,800 uh, blocks were leased to oil companies. Today, that number is 2,500. So I would say the Gulf of Mexico is liquidated. It is an important supply source going forward. So the industry needs to invest more there. Global uh, exploration has gone from 100 billion a year to 40 billion a year. So while Dr. Fatih's 100% right, the full impact of shale is yet to come. The full impact of lack of investment in long cycle projects is yet to come as well in terms of impact on the world. That's going to be an offsetting factor on shale growth. That's something you focused on in the, in, in the WIO in the past as well. And, and you, you brought up sort of the role of investors. I'd say last year we were focusing a lot on that issue. But what's your perspective now on sort of the role of capital allocation and making sure that we meet some of those challenges? A lot of the investors that gave $50 billion to shale producers, a lot in the Permian and the $20 billion of private equity that was given uh, uh, to shale, I would say their expectations have changed a lot. It's gone from drill baby drill to show me the money, meaning the focus was on production <laughs> growth and now it's on financial returns. So there really is a new investor expectation that companies provide capital efficient growth they generate free cash flow, uh, but they also return capital. So the true challenge going forward for the oil and gas industry is investment, uh, but we need stable prices for that. And with oil prices having been at six, $76 a barrel WTI at the beginning of October and $42 WTI at the end of December, that's not exactly a stable environment. Mm. And the investment horizon for oil uh, companies is about 10 years. So we need stable prices to encourage more investment, and I think that's a key theme uh, of the IEA. Mm. Frank, I want to bring you into this discussion because I think another key theme uh, of the talk that Fatih just gave was uh, geopolitics and foreign policy, and you're kind of at the front lines of that uh, in your job. You want to talk a little bit about how you're engaging um, on, on some of the themes that Fatih talked about in the work that you're doing at the IEA? I mean, at, at State Department. I just <laughs> yeah. keep you a different job, sorry. Frank. That's all right, that's all right. No, no I'd be delighted, and, and thank you for having me. And uh, first, I'd like to call attention. You, we mentioned the 45th anniversary yeah, yeah. Uh, in the event that we had to invite people to take a look at the pictures. Um, we went, uh, you know, Secretary Kissinger convened 12 different countries to kick off IEA, and today it, it's, it's a, an, a, an arrangement of 38. Um, things have, have certainly changed in those 45 years, but some things also remain the same. The question that uh, Secretary Kissinger uh, and others uh, were wrestling with was whether and to what extent energy is used as a, a tool of, of malign actors and used to coerce and control, or is energy something that provides development opportunity, prosperity, and progress to, to countries? Um, the U.S. shale abundance and energy abundance writ large, uh, kind of an all of the above approach, um, allows for a, a different approach, and certainly the latter in terms of uh, the ability not just to export our energy and energy technologies, but also export our innovation and our entrepreneurialism. 
around the world. Uh, you know, the, we, we were, I was reflecting, Fatih, you made the comment about government policies do matter. Um, I would also say, uh, in the case of the United States, which was really, as it go around the world, um, one of the things that's distinct about the United States is it's actually one of, of not state-directed action. It's the private sector being unleashed and the government actions that were taken in 2005 Energy Policy Act, for example, the repeal of the oil export ban, streamlining FERC processes, is one of government restraint and allowing the innovation of the private sector to flourish. Um, so thank you. Uh, but but it, it creates certain degree of headroom without question uh, for uh, us to engage uh, geopolitically. Uh, but threats still remain and concerns uh, continue. In, in, in Europe, for example, we see a long-term issue about uh, countries' dependency on Russia. Uh, that's, that's a long-standing issue. It's something President Reagan wrestled with. Um, the threat is not new, but it continues to grow. Uh, we have now have an increase in gas dependency on Russia at 38%. Um, it's, it's clear that uh, the issues uh, there, it's about uh, maintaining st status of dependency and uh, creating a psychological effect on importing countries. And this is not just about gas, it's also a nuclear story, which is why there's this rush uh, for uh, countries, why the Russians, to build out long-term infrastructure, uh, pipeline capacity, new uh, nuclear, um, because they see what's happening in the United States. They see the second wave. I mean, we've just started exporting gas from the United States in earnest in 2016. It's tremendous what's happening. Uh, the, the new innovations on small modular reactors creates new opportunity in the nuclear space. So we see this happening. Um, so the threats uh, concerns in Europe remain. Uh, also new opportunities, not just from the US. Eastern Med uh, gas development is an amazing uh, uh, demonstration of energy pragmatism overcoming historic uh, you know, political clouds. Um, Cyprus just made an announcement, ExxonMobil just made a big find off the coast of Cyprus. And there's a degree of pragmatism in the Eastern Med. They're not looking just which country is going to be the hub, but the region to be the hub. Um, it's, a, it's a new uh, paradigm. And if we go further, one of the issues that we're also moving uh, quite uh, forward on is in the context of Middle East energy cooperation. Um, in, in January, uh, we launched the energy pillar for the Middle East Strategic Alliance, uh, a, a grouping of all six GCC countries, Egypt and Jordan, and the GCC, to talk about opportunities for shared cooperation, collaboration, um, which help political stability there. Uh, but also, uh, as we realize, uh, energy from the Middle East still matters. Um, and so it, it creates uh, some, some fantastic forums. And I guess I'll just recognize uh, we talk about energy transitions, and Fatih did a, a brilliant job at talking about the Indo-Pacific. The other, that's the big transition we're also very focused on, is, mm -hmm. is we've moved, uh, you know, the U.S. is an Atlantic nation, but it's also a Pacific nation. And what we've seen is, is a transition away from the Atlantic Basin to the Indo-Pacific. And so we have an entire uh, focus uh, on facilitating uh, and ensuring transparent, efficient, uh, free, and open markets in the region. Let me pause there. That's great. No, thanks, Frank. And, and, and we're very pleased to be involved with you guys at the State Department and some of the work that you're doing in the Indo-Pacific, particularly and interestingly, building beyond just sort of state, or excuse me, uh, federal to central government relationships in India and looking at creating academic and utility and private sector partnerships at the state and subnational level as well. So that's another interesting innovation that you guys have undertaken. 
Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's it's a in the collaboration with CSIS is really critically important. Uh, what we see, uh, and it speaks a little bit to what Fatih was also referencing was how to optimize energy sources, incorporate them. And in and in India, you have this this historic push to maintain coal, um, but you, they also want to have clean air. Uh, and, and Modi has a very aggressive um, renewables push. Well, how do we optimize all of these? And, and usually we see. Uh, gas at scale before we see large-scale deployment of renewables. It's something that we're working to optimize there, and CSIS's work on the state-by-state -state level is really helpful in that regard. Great. Okay, we'll come back and visit some of those issues. But, Catherine, this is a really good segue. Um, I've known you for a long time, and you've been talking about flexibility in the grid before it was cool. So uh, <laughs> totally. uh, one of the things that I think is really remarkable and not to be missed in this year's World Energy Outlook is the extreme focus on electrification, both in terms of connecting people that don't currently have access to electricity, but also the, the sort of incorporation of electricity into more and more parts of, of the sort of modern day economy. I, I really love the slide, and I'm so glad that it's animated. I actually hadn't seen it animated before that, that uh, Fatih presented about how to incorporate greater levels of renewables into the system. You're watching this day in and day out. What are the, the, the key things that you're seeing happen that are, that are bringing that more flexibility into the electric power sector? Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for inviting me. Fatih is my co-chair on the board of stewards of the Future of Energy Council, and, I, and I'm co-chair of the Advanced Energy Technology Council for the West, and that's just what I think about every day in my regular day job, too. Is, is that part that the chart that Fatih showed that he said this is where it's terrifying? Like what room do we have? And that's what we're trying to figure out is like what technologies can really help us carve out that room to get us to a transition? So the electric system is, is a little bit like when we purchase a smartphone. We don't purchase it to make phone calls anymore. Sometimes you have phone calls if you have to. But we usually, we purchase it to manage every single aspect of our life. And in that same way, the power grid is getting like that. It's going to be managing not just power generation, but transportation through electric vehicles. It will be managing heat as we electrify our heating systems. It's really gonna take on a much larger role. So what do we need to do to, to carve out that niche, and especially with new technologies? And we risk overbuilding. We risk overbuilding renewables, we risk overbuilding We've already overbuilt coal. It's like, you know, how, what are all those stranded assets we're going to have? So some of the things, just to reiterate what, what Fatih was talking about, we need some new policy constructs. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we, we incentivize, that we build regulatory constructs and incentivize business models that are based on different metrics so that we allow utilities to actually get paid for performance not paid for building a big asset that then they can mortgage and have their consumers pay for. Mm -hmm. So in, we need to switch the incentives. That's a policy-based solution. We also need to think much more holistically about planning so that we don't overbuild, so that we know not just what are the consumer demands, but what are the resources the consumers can bring to bear to the system? How the, can the consumers really participate so that our system no longer goes from being one way, from power generation, transmission, distribution to consumer, but really can work both ways and that the consumer can be part of that resource mix? And then also investment. How does the government put its shoulders and hips into the right investment to make sure that everything can flourish and that we do 
carve out that space. So that's how I see kind of the key pieces of this puzzle. Mm -hmm. And, and when, whenever we're sort of talking about the transition that's taking place in the electric power sector, there's the presumption of a declining cost, a continued declining cost for solar and wind. There's some parts of the world you look around and you say, how can that possibly get cheaper? The other side of that cost is zero. So, so and, and, then, and then questions about you know, how important storage and batteries will be in, in being able to be part of that transition. What are you seeing that's interesting along those lines for the next kinds of advancements we need yeah, to Yeah, so a couple of things. One is, um, ironically, the solar tariffs that were, that were placed on solar systems have produced some efficiencies in the solar space because costs did go up. But we still have room for more efficiency mm -hmm. in solar, whether it is on the cell side, which we're working really hard on, but also on the balance of systems side and the soft costs, consumer acquisition. How do we really eke out every bit of efficiency? The same with wind. There are new technologies coming in wind that are gonna be much more efficient. On the grid itself, how do we put smart grid sensors out that can really manage where, where load is and the heat on the lines to make sure that we eke out every single bit of efficiency? Then we can also figure out what is storage play. Mm -hmm. And it's not just batteries. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you three examples of where storage can really be interesting. One is a couple of years ago, Aliso Canyon, was an, it's a natural gas storage facility in California, had a big leak. Mm -hmm. And they decided, they, they fixed that, and rather than building a new natural gas facility, they said, all right, we're gonna call energy storage. Can you replace that? In six months, they had installed 70 megawatts of energy storage mm -hmm. to replace a gas facility. That shows you where you can do replacement very quickly and more cost-effectively. Mm -hmm. The second piece is seasonal storage. So we run the risk of overbuilding batteries if we, and overbuilding renewables if we don't think about not just the daily differences, not just when the sun is out and when it's, when it's under the clouds or when it's dark, but also the changes in the season. Mm -hmm. So having seasonal storage that may look very different, it may look like a chemical plant, just may look, it may look like a manufacturing facility, it's not battery cells, I think that's gonna be really, really critical and that'll happen within 10 years too. This mm -hmm. is a hockey stick. Mm -hmm. the, the third piece is the consumer side, and I mentioned this before. Right now we have what you would call virtual power plants, which are consumers that have batteries and these can be large, commercial and industrial consumers, they could be residential, but I would say right now, commercial and industrial consumers are doing this right now in San Francisco, where there are about 100 buildings that have batteries that are managed for their own demand. They have batteries there because it helps them on their demand charges. The California system operator called those batteries 700 times during the heat wave in California. All of them operated as a virtual power plant for hundreds of megawatts of power from the consumers, the consumers not only did not know that because of the system management aspect, but they were also paid for it. Mm -hmm. So part of this is you have to not only have the technology, you have to have everybody as part of the puzzle, and you need to figure out where you compensate all these different values. That's great. So we're gonna open it up for questions to the audience. Before we do that, I just wanna ask everyone on the panel to give me your very quick take on an issue that keeps coming up whenever we do an event here, which is, 
we're so preoccupied by the ways in which the energy transition is taking place. We're, there's so many new technologies, there's so many new opportunities, but we have a physical infrastructure that we are on an annual basis experiencing that we have these huge vulnerabilities. And so Catherine, you did a really interesting uh, Energy Gang podcast that was focusing on what was going on with PG&E in particular and the fires in California. If we could just kind of go down the line and then end with you, Fatih, before we open it up. Very quickly, what are you thinking about in terms of physical infrastructure protection and the role that it plays in what each of you are doing? Catherine? Yeah, so I think getting more visibility on the grid is one key thing. Yeah. So like sensors, what are the sensors? And then also having systems that are resilient, that not that can fail quickly and come back quickly. So whether that's microgrids in specific places, so very strategically placed. So you have to have both the visibility and you have to have the backup. That's great, thanks. Frank, do you want to say? Yeah, there, there, there is certainly consensus. I mean, obviously, when there is an interruption and a lack of reliability and power, it creates political instability and no country wants that or government wants that. Mm -hmm. This was actually an issue that was talked quite a bit about. I mentioned the Mesa Forum in Oman. Um, it, it was, we're gonna walk away with some work groups to focus on areas, but something that all of the, all of the countries at issue, they were identifying uh, cyber protection of infrastructure as a critical need for them. So it's, it's not just a US uh, uh, focus area, but it's a global one indeed. Okay. John? Uh, having lived through Hurricane Sandy, I think there were a lot of lessons learned about uh, emergency response to an extreme weather event or even a hacking event. I think a lot of that knowledge and experience has not been institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And whether it's backup generators, flexibility of the grid, uh, uh, leadership at the municipal level and leadership at the federal level, I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of our infrastructure, in terms of building the safety net uh, under it in case uh, there's an extreme event that affects the electric grid. And I don't think we're much better prepared today than we were during Hurricane Sandy. It's a real concern. That's great. No, I can perhaps say something very general. Uh, again, a heads up. The U.S. is becoming a very much of a, uh, energy rich country, but this shouldn't uh, make the policymakers forget the energy security. Still a very important issue. And in particular, I would say two things. One, the stocks, uh, the oil stocks are still very important for the rainy days that we may have because the price pack as a result of geopolitical tension or the hurricanes will affect everybody in the US economy. Second one is the electricity security. These are still two very important issues. Uh, we shouldn't be uh, blinded by the uh, big oil and gas production growth in the country and uh, forget the energy security as an important aspect. That's great, okay. We're gonna open up for questions. If you could please, uh, we have a few ground rules. Uh, wait for the microphones, because uh, a lot of people watching online. State your name and affiliation and question in the form of a question. We've got one uh, from Twitter already, which we can add to the queue, which is uh, for to speak about hydrogen uh, and the role of hydrogen in, it, in its role in the energy transition. So we'll add that one to the queue and I'll take a couple more. We'll just talk with Ambassador Sakuda and then we'll go to Emily. Coming, it's a big room. <laughs> Hi, good morning. Uh, Bob Secuta, <coughs> sorry, fighting a cold too. Bob Secuta, former PDS at Energy Ambassador Azerbaijan and now with Caspian Policy Center. Fatih Bey, this is primarily for you. Um, you talked in, about really two global issues, energy, sec energy security and CO2 emissions and climate change. 
The IEA, as you suggested, has had a long focus on basically the West, the OECD countries. We've done some expansion. But where is the IEA today in terms of reaching out and engaging and bringing in the Chinas, the Indias, the Africas, the Indonesias um, into this equation, into finding solutions? Okay. We'll take one more, too. Um, Bob, Emily, right there. Hi, it's Emily Meredith from Energy Intelligence. Um, I was hoping Fatih and Frank and anybody else who wants to ask could talk, uh, answer, um, where you see oil markets today and developing over the next several months, especially with the outage um, or declines in a possible outage in Venezuela and also OPEC possible actions and extensions. Okay. okay, let's take those three. So we've got hydrogen, we've got the expansion of the IEA, and then we've got sort of more contemporary uh, oil market situation that anybody would like to respond to. Fatih, would you like to start? Because I think two of those are more directed towards you. Perhaps two directed to me is the hydrogen and the, the, where is the IEA now. Okay. Uh, the hydrogen is gaining a lot of, it's not a new thing, it is almost 50 years uh, with us, the, the hydrogen. <laughs> But why it is uh, getting more attention is the following. Now, many countries around the world, there is a, it is one of the very few unifying themes in the international energy debate. All the countries now want to focus on hydrogen, politically governments, because the cost of solar and wind are coming down, and the hydrogen can be a solution to this intermittent problem. This is number one. Number two, some fossil fuel rich countries want to also make use of hydrogen to diversify uh, their routes and improve the energy security. Uh, Japan, I don't know if we have anybody from the Japanese uh, government uh, here today, but uh, Japan th this year is the G20 uh, chair, and the Japanese government Prime Minister Abe asked the IEA to brief the G20 leaders on hydrogen. We are making a major report to show where is the uh, current uh, the uh, status of hydrogen and uh, where it can uh, bring us in terms of the uh, the economics of hydrogen many people think like the lng some 20 30 years ago oh, we have now shipped the gas through uh, with the ships and, and so on we are bringing the uh, gas through uh, lng and uh, other uh, ways around the world in the last 20 years uh, hydrogen may well be a, a, a way of uh, transporting energy. But there is a lot of uh, okay, yeah. uh, momentum uh, there. And many companies are putting money as well, not only governments. Number two, where the IEA, <coughs> Ambassador Chekuta's uh, question. So three years ago, the share of IEA countries in the uh, global energy mix, their consumption was about 45%. And after we have started, uh, Ambassador Chekuta, uh, with our modernization, opening the doors of the IEA to emerging countries. We have now Mexico as a member of the IEA, but we have now China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, several G20 uh, countries as part of the IEA's associate uh, members. Our, our current status do not uh, allow us to be, be a full uh, member now, but we are working very closely with those countries, as you rightly pointed out. The future is uh, definitely uh, the future of the energy is one of the charts I show here shows uh, engaging with them, uh, suggesting them to make the right decisions for the investment uh, for the energy policies. But we are very much aware of this uh, fact, and thank you very much for that uh, 
a question. Great. John and uh, Frank, do you want to say anything about the near-term oil market conditions at all? Uh, you can pick any part of it. There's a lot to talk about. We sure. had an all-day conference on it last week. So. Yeah, I was hoping Fati would get the hot potato on oil prices. I'll do my best. Uh, there, there are four key drivers. One is demand, one is shale growth, one is the wild card of Iran and now Venezuela, and the other is the financial markets. On demand, uh, even though the world uh, economy is uh, slowing in growth, it's still growing, so demand in uh, oil is probably still up a million four hundred thousand barrels a day or in that range. Uh, shale, uh, year on year, uh, uh, just looking back to December, December is up about a million, uh, uh, this is U.S. oil production, including shale and, and liquids, is about a million eight a day. That's probably going to moderate to a million five because of the cutback in uh, expenditures I talked about in response to the lower oil prices in the fourth quarter where you had a $50 price, not a $60 price. Uh, I think the real wild card is Iran. What happens with the sanctions uh, uh, on May 4th? Uh, you know, if exports from Iran were about two and a half million barrels a day, they're probably between a million to a million five right now. How much more is cut? Uh, what happens with Venezuela being cut down uh, politically and economically from two and a half million a day to a million a day? Those are definitely wild cards that we have to uh, deal with. I think the one silver lining uh, about uh, uh, the signaling of uh, uh, waivers and, and a cut in exports in Iran that happened uh, in November, we saw what surplus capacity was. So I think there is enough surplus capacity to meet if Iran actually were taking close to zero in exports. So that's the silver lining there, because I think Saudi and OPEC uh, can stand up and uh, uh, generate more supply. And last but not least, um, the financial markets actually have an impact on oil prices. Uh, if uh, the sentiment is poor, it weighs on oil price. We saw that in December. Uh, the S&P went down, uh, oil prices went down, and oil equities went down. So what happens to the financial market also has a, a, a direct and indirect effect, I'd say, on oil prices themselves. Mm. Frank, th that was wonderful. Frank, do you want to say anything? I mean, the U.S. is playing a huge role in the oil market, both on the supply side, but then increasingly on the demand side as well. And so do you want to share anything about how you guys are thinking about, quite frankly, what is a full plate of oil market realities that you've got to kind of be assessing uh, and integrating with your foreign policy strategies? Sure. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I, uh, yeah, I guess I would, I would, I would first, uh, well, we, can, we, of course, monitor uh, what's going on. We, we rely on the expertise of of a variety of, uh, of entities, IEA among them, EIA, uh, and others, to, to see where where the market is today, where we anticipate it's going to go. Um, in our review, we don't look at price, um, but the law certainly requires it in the context of Iran, for example, um, for the, there to be a presidential certification that there's sufficient barrels in the market available to offset any barrels taken off the market uh, for uh, in, in regards to the, to, to the sanctions regime. In that calculus, of course, there's an awareness of, of where things are, and, and I think we're, we're, uh, we feel quite comfortable, uh, in particular given that EIA continues, seems like on a monthly basis, uh, to adjust their forecasts on what uh, supplies look like <coughs> upward every, seems like every month. Uh, so I think that's that's a, that's a pretty powerful signal. Um, I have nothing to announce. Uh, sorry, but uh, but why don't I just stop there? 
Okay. Sounds good. Did you want to add anything on that topic? No, good, okay. If we uh, subscribe to the virtue of brevity, I think we can do another round of three. So we'll start on this side of the room. Oh my gosh, okay. Uh, so we'll go right here, and then we'll go here, and then we'll go to Bill. And I'll try to get to the rest sure. of the Sure, uh, Bill Murray with uh, R Street. Uh, Fadi, you were talking a bit about CCS and how important it is and how there may be some investment in the next 10 years, but there seems to be a lot of bottlenecks in the government side and the regulatory side, you have directives in the EU for CCS and yet Germany has literally no investment. Uh, here in the US, things are moving a little more quickly but not as quickly as people would expect. What is about, what has to really motivate and get the investment going that doesn't have to do with money per se but has to do with bureaucracy? Okay, we'll take that one and then uh, right here. Benjamin Weil, up until recently, the international advisor to the Israeli Minister of Energy. Uh, my question is as follows. The topic of um, this session is also the U.S. and what it can do. And my question is to Mr. Fannin is that um, in the East Mediterranean, but also in Eastern Europe, we see a lot of geopolitical tension uh, and just different battles. And uh, my question is how more can the U.S. get involved to not only promote uh, American energy companies, but also resolve the tension. Uh, we see that whether it's with Turkey vis-a-vis uh, -vis Cyprus and Greece, or it's the Russian tension in Eastern European countries, um, and what more can be done on a diplomatic side to kind of ease the tensions? And then Ben, can you hand it to Bill? Thank you. Thank you, Bill Eichward, consultant. I wanted to probe your uh, number on the 42 trillion and what is included specifically in that number. And I'm thinking about, does it include, for example, some of the innovations in grid technology, et cetera, that, that were talked about uh, by others on the panel? And um, then secondly, is there a comparable number that you would have for uh, stranded costs that, that, that if, if you were to take a more efficient look at systems, what would you expect to be the number for stranded cost? Mm. Do you want to take the first and the third first? Of course. Uh, I can start with the CCS. Now, uh, of the, uh, just let me start with a number. Of the all clean energy investments uh, last year, the share of CCS in all clean energy investments last year was 0.1%. Just to tell you how much it was. The bulk of it went to uh, uh, renewables uh, and uh, also uh, some uh, smart grids, but CCS get uh, uh, very little attention. Having said that, two things. One, uh, I believe still it is very critical uh, because we have, a, uh, as I showed you, coal is still with us. It is 38% uh, of the global electricity uh, uh, consumption. Plus, there is a U part there. U part is the utilization uh, uh, part of uh, 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 carbon, and it is especially important for the so-called hard-to-abate sectors, such as the iron steel sector, such as petrochemical sector. But what can be done? Not very different than what we have done with the uh, renewables. Give some incentives. Give some incentives to the, uh, to the investors. Make it commercially available. And in that context, my uh, congratulations to uh, U.S. administration for the 45Q, uh, to giving some in incentive uh, for the CCUS uh, uh, applications. And I think this is a business model we need to uh, get uh, inspiration from. Plus, uh, there may be some fine tuning here and there, but this is a very good move. 
Norway is pushing, uh, Canada is pushing, UK is uh, pushing, Australia is pushing. I believe a coal industry, if they are, uh, in my view, smart enough to keep their uh, keep the coal as an asset for their portfolios, they have to look at the CCVS also very closely. And this is what I would suggest. For the uh, standard assets, so uh, I don't know, to be honest with you, uh, how we can have an agreement uh, globally what is standard asset, what will be standard asset, what will, uh, what will it not be. That number is considered in the case of a so-called uh, national determined contribution uh, path uh, with those policies. If the world would go for a much more uh, carbon constrained uh, world, the picture will change and we may well see that uh, some of the, uh, especially some of the coal assets uh, can be standard there in a heavy tab. And here, uh, when I say coal, it is mainly the, uh, the power plants uh, around the world. Uh, but my question is always, I ask myself, who is going to pay this? Mm -hmm. Who is going to, uh, who will have the courage to go to the, uh, the, uh, the Indian Minister of Power or the, uh, the, the Thai Minister of Power to say that you have to shut down your power plant even though it is bringing electricity to your citizens, even though the, your capital is not paid back, you have to shut down because we have the international agreements. Mm. I will not take this job, or perhaps, John, you want to do it? <laughs> um, Frank, I want to go to you, but I, but I really want to ask Catherine to follow up on this question very quickly, because I think there's the issue, there's the sort of theoretical issue of stranded assets, and then there's just sort of the reality of yeah. business model challenges that make things that make money now go out of business. Yeah. It, it, how are you seeing that sort of not as a theoretical discussion, but as a live issue facing utilities around the world? Yeah, that power plants can't compete in the auction. I mean, they just can't do it. They, they there's so themselves. many cheaper assets out there. Yeah. So companies like AEP, which is a coal-heavy company, has decided we're going to go to all clean energy, and that's, that's their goal. The power plants in this country, the coal plants, are old enough that they're retiring. They're retiring very precipitously. So CCS like isn't making economic sense in the U.S. Um, it can certainly make economic sense where you have much younger plants and we have a much more vibrant industry. So it, it, with this in mind, you have to think about all right. So what are the other things we're going to have to bring into the market, or how we're going to make assets more competitive and use them as smartly and efficiently as we can? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a very big discussion, Frank. Uh, Another big discussion, uh, how do you use what you do to solve some of these tensions that Ben had raised? Yeah, I guess uh, I kind of look at it in two ways. One, um, they're, they're going to the concept of kind of what we call energy pragmatism, which is there will be, a, there may be a political cloud or a longstanding tension between states, um, but we've, what we've increasingly seen, and part of it is just about virtue of demand, uh, of countries need energy, is 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 a is um, whether they uh, would like to or not, they, they understand practically uh, they ought to cooperate and collaborate where it makes sense to do so. Political clouds will may continue, um, but there's a vibrant energy trade 
in areas that were only unthinkable a few years ago and now that are happening. Um, and we've mentioned the Eastern Med. I think it's, it's, it's kind of a remarkable. Uh, and what do we do about it? We, of course, you mentioned U.S. companies are certainly involved, and so that's, that's good. But what we want to do is um, applaud it. Um, we, we talk about, uh, and then, you know, Egypt uh, has this Eastern Med Gas Forum. It's an inclusive body. Uh, it's not intended at all to exclude. Um, what we would like to see is, is more th uh, developments like that. So and some of the uh, things that we do is, is provide uh, support in, di in different ways to do that. Um, in, in other areas, uh, I mentioned the Middle East and the notion of, of, of energy collaboration. Um, there, there's, there's so much opportunity and there's, each of these countries have their own respective domestic uh, energy plans. Um, what we've done is we've reviewed them and identified the kind of the through lines through all of them. And, and once we have people talking to another and, and, and identifying that you've already agreed to do take certain steps, then it establishes a foundation to develop that collaboration of those broader win-wins. The, the issue with Europe is a different one um, in, the, in, in the sense of there's this dependency um, uh, ongoing dependency discussion. What, what, what we've seen is, is there's a difference in, in, in the definition of energy security and what does that mean? And, and is there a, do countries, are, will, are they willing to pay a premium to have diversification? And that's what we, one of the real focuses is, is, is both diplomatically through the engagement commission and others, support of projects of common interest to support the diversification of both energy types, routes, uh, and sources. Um, so uh, I, I think the knock-on effect of actually uh, moving energy from one state to another um, will uh, play out in the longer term, um, just in the way that uh, both psychologically but also in the, the kind of the shared value that each, each uh, see a benefit in. That's great. Well, we're about out of time. We did went a little bit over. I, Fatih, I want I invited to make a, a closing comment uh, based on his trip here in Washington, and then we'll we'll do yeah. some thank yous. I have many things to uh, say, but just finish by wanting to make a one statement on oil and gas. And I want to show <laughs> one slide based on that. Uh, some seven years ago, the IEA chief economist. Uh, gave an interview to Wall Street Journal. Do we have mm -hmm. that uh, slide? You do, uh, to if you go it? forward, one more slide. Okay. I cannot... Can you uh, advance it for him? Okay. The IEA chief economist uh, <laughs> in the, uh, seven Whoever years ago was. said, in 2020, IEA says we have to top Saudi's oil output, which is happening almost either in next few months or definitely 2020. Uh, and when uh, IES chief economist at that time <laughs> said this, many people thought impossible to uh, to uh, US will produce more oil than Saudi Arabia. And it was the Wall Street Journal uh, cover page. Now, I dare to make uh, one more statement here, uh, like our chief economist in 2012, and uh, make uh, one humble suggestion. My my statement or my expectation is now, what we have seen now in terms of shared revolution is nothing compared to what we will see in the next few years to come. In terms of the, what I said, the full impact of shale is yet to be seen. And this is very important for United States, for global energy security, 
and uh, please uh, enjoy this. This is uh, one thing. But second, I want to leave with a humble advice. No country is an energy island, including the United States. Please, please, let's remember this. Uh, United States will be a very strong country in terms of uh, energy, but let's uh, do not forget that uh, we are all in the same planet and uh, no country is an energy island. Just wanted to make this uh, a small uh, uh, remark. So Thank what you. we need is the Wall Street Journal to put that statement on the front cover of something and then we can check that <laughs> it's out. It's not that sexy, so <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Listen, I want to say thank you very much, Faji, to you and all your colleagues for all that you uh, contribute to the energy conversation, for you for being here again uh, today. Uh, John, always for supporting us very much in this program and, and uh, in, in this event. And Frank and Catherine, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Please join me in thanking uh, a great panel of speakers today.